Welcome to season two of the Best Boss Ever podcast series, where our accomplished guests share amazing stories about their best bosses, their career paths, how they got to where they are, and what the future looks like from here. And also the what not to do's from their worst bosses. Make these stories all the more interesting because you know it, we've all been there. Thanks for joining us today and stay tuned because the hits just keep on coming. After graduating from Milan University in 1974, today's guest, Mark Russell, moved to Orlando, Florida, and was named director of golf at Walt Disney World. And it wasn't long thereafter before the PGA took notice. And in 1980, Mark joined the PGA Tour as vice president of rules and competition. Additionally, he became the head of the rules committee in charge of all, yes, all, on-site administration and competition each week on the PGA Tour. Having just recently retired after 40 years with the tour, he's quite possibly the most famous man in golf that nobody knows, other than every single player, every single caddy, and every single local PGA Tour event committee member. With more stories than you can imagine, we're honored to have Mark Russell join us today. Welcome, Mark, and thanks so much for being a part of the Best Boss Ever podcast series. Carl, thank you for having me on. I'm looking forward to talking to you today. Well, let's get right at it here. You've, listen, with 40 plus years behind you in the sport of golf and having an amazing role as the head of officials, the head of the rules committee, and then having all of that on-site responsibility, I can imagine that as your career extended and grew, there are quite a few people who who you might call the best boss you ever had or certainly influenced you more than perhaps others. So give us one or two and, and why. Oh, absolutely. J- Jack Tuthill uh, was a huge influence on me and Clyde Mangum also. Uh, Clyde's the one that hired me and Jack Tuthill worked for uh, the PGA of America who controlled the golf tour before 1968. And then in uh, 1968, players got together, Arnold Palmer, Lee Trevino, Jack Nicklaus, you know, we're in a situation where we're making quite a bit of money here and it's a television deal and we need to break away from the PGA. We don't need the club professionals run our organization. We need to run our organization. So they did that and they uh, hired Joe Dyes, their first commissioner, the former uh, executive director of the USGA, and um, Gardner Dickinson and Dan Sykes went to Jack Tuthill and said, Jack, we want you to run our golf tournaments. And the guys from the PGA said, Jack, have you lost your mind going with these crazy players? So Jack told me that he went with the players. And he said, they told him you'll never be able to book any golf. These golf courses aren't going to have that's not involved with the PGA. So Jack told me the next morning by noon, he had all the golf courses booked. And he went on from there, brought some guys over from the PGA staff. And uh, the guys pass the hat every week to pay a salary. Well, that's amazing. And I can imagine, well, in fact, I know this to be true. From 1980, when you joined the PGA Tour to, and I want to say you've been retired, I don't know, a month or two months or something like that. A week. A week. There you go. (laughs) So we're catching you fresh into the life of leisure. But you watched 
the game of golf grow economically and commercially from a hundred thousand or maybe even less on a per tournament prize money basis to what is now millions and four hundred million dollars. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and if you stacked that year on year on year on year, you you watched you maybe a hundredfold or a hundred and fifty fold growth. An amazing story of growth, audience development, people falling in love with the game, watching the game, going to to the tournaments that you that you oversaw. Um, so I'm going to start at the beginning. Maybe um, did you play golf in college? Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, I, yeah, I did play, but I only played one year because I was on a Mark Russell Foundation scholarship, and I took a job at Alamance Country Club mowing grass, raking bunkers, doing things. And uh, so I, I gave up playing on the golf team because I needed the money to go to school. But I did play one year. I had a great time. That was before athletic scholarships, before Elon gave athletic scholarships for golf. But they have an excellent program right now. But yes, I did play golf in college. So you're working at the country club. You're putting yourself through school. You played a little bit of golf in college, but obviously an affinity for and a love for the game, right? Oh, absolutely. Played my whole life. Played all sports growing up, Carl, but my father turned me on. My father was a pretty good player, and he turned me on to golf. And um, my football coach could not believe I wasn't running track in the spring, but I said, Coach, I'm playing golf. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, man. That's good. So, okay, Disney, Walt Disney World. It's 40 years ago. Walt Disney World is just sort of coming into its own, right? Been open about four years when I got there. Right. And so how many golf courses on the broader property there, and how did you get to Disney Golf? Well, we had three golf courses, and when I I went down there, I took a job in the summertime in the theme park. I worked on the Jungle Cruise. I was the guy that one of the jungle captains that took you around a jungle. Fantastic summer job. And then when springtime rolled around, I've been going to school for 16 years. I'm going, well, like, you know, if I'm not going to go to school, I at least need to get over to the uh, golf course, the golf resort, and, um, you know, be involved in golf. So it took me about six, eight months to do that. But I got transferred to golf operations. We had three golf courses, the Palm, the Magnolia, and the Lake Buena Vista Club. Started teaching golf over there, became an assistant pro, and ultimately became the director of golf. It was fantastic, and I was in charge of the Disney Golf Classic. And that's where I met the PGA Tour staff. And um, about six months later, Clyde Mangum called me up, God rest his soul, and asked me if I'd be interested in being on the Rules Committee in 1980. Unbelievable, really. So from (laughs) the captain on the Jungle Cruise... (laughs) <laughs> to teach in golf, to becoming the assistant pro, to all of a sudden getting a call to join the tour on the back of, obviously, the good job you all did with the Disney Golf Classic. You start with the PGA Tour doing exactly what? I was on the rules committee right off the bat. I was out with the guys. And, and one of the first things I realized, like I say, Jack Toddy and Clyde Mangum were in charge back then. And uh, I thought I knew something about the rules till I got out there, but it was amazing to me how the committee operated. I mean, the thought process of the committee is we want to get it right. There are no egos here. If you're not exactly sure about a ruling situation, we have radios. Gentlemen, uh, come in committee. I got a player's ball here, this, that, whatever. 
And uh, the committee worked as one. And the main thought process of everyone was we want to get this right. It's got to be right. And uh, it did a great job with that. And, you know, when I first came out here, Carl, we played for 100,000, 150, 200,000. No one was complaining. Right. Remember, Dave Eichelberger won the tournament at Bay Hill. We was playing for 200,000 in 1980. And uh, he was ecstatic. But he did say, well, this is great. Now I'm back to broke. (laughs) (laughs) Dave Eichelberger. But, uh, yeah, no one was complaining. But I was very impressed with the way the committee operated and the committee protected me. I didn't make a ruling uh, unless somebody was with me for about uh, at least a month and a half till I felt comfortable. And uh, then they kind of cut you loose and let you go. And our committee are going to be what the speed of the green is going to be. So there's a lot that goes into it. And um, back then we only had uh, one, but now we have seven agronomists on our staff that are a tremendous help at the championships every week. Well, that's a big, I don't think anybody actually knew that. I, I consider myself I'm not only a golf fan, I, I play the game, I love the game. I've been watching the game since I was a kid. I had virtually no idea that course setup, rough management, pin placements, right down the line was overseen and actually determined by you and the rules committee. Oh, absolutely. You know, we're in total charge of golf course setup. We'll have one guy set up the front side and another guy set up the back, and they'll collaborate on what they're going to do. I'm going to play this part three uh, 160 yards, and then I'm going to play it 221 day and kind of coordinate with that other guy setting up the backside and see. So they give the players quite a bit of variety. And you have to look at a lot of things, too. I mean, which way is the wind blowing? How hard is the wind going to blow? Is it a force carry? Many different things. So a lot more goes into it than people realize. It's it's uh, it's big business. And, you know, you want to challenge. Our thought process is to challenge the players. We want to set the golf course up as difficult as it can play, but fair. That's the key. I mean, golf is hard enough to play as is without doing some goofy something. And, you know, I mean, a member guessed the basic syndrome is, oh, man, we had the green so fast. One guy ate putter. Well, how much fun is that? Huh? <laughs> Can we just set the golf course up difficult but fair and make the game a lot more enjoyable? Hell, it's hard enough as is. Well, it is. And anybody who's played it knows that. And every time you hear uh, pl- players interviewed, what you always want to hear come out of their mouth is, you know, that course was difficult today, but it was a fair test. That's right. So the rules of golf, um, which you adjudicated literally your whole career, are daunting, right? I mean, rules get changed. You don't drop from the shoulder now. You drop from the knee high. When I first started, you held it over your back and dropped it. There you go. So how does one actually keep up with the rules, assuming one is even interested, right? Well, first of all, golf is a game that's played over hundreds of acres under all types of conditions. So when you're playing for millions of dollars, you got to have some stringent rules that cover all these things. But the basic rules of golf are pretty simple, really. I mean, if you know your options on a yellow and red penalty area and you know how to take handle an unplayable line, you know how to take relief from an obstruction, you're going to be considered a damn rules expert at the club, you know. <laughs> but a lot of things, a lot of things can happen out there that 
you know, people really don't think about. I mean, let's say you whiff the wrong ball. What do you do then? Okay. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of things that can happen to rules, but the basic rules are pretty simple, really. But a lot of things happen in that decision book is, is pretty wild. If you whiff the wrong ball, the definition of stroke is uh, the forward move of the club, a fairly strikeout and move the ball. That's what you were trying to do. So that counts as a stroke. Right. Okay. So, so, okay. Well, so here's one. I mean, I remember Zach Johnson, forget which tournament, but he was taking a practice stroke on the tee box, nicked the ball and it rolled off and he looked at the other two guys in, in his group and they all went, eh, put the ball back. So in that situation, he was not intentionally addressing or trying to hit the ball, but he nicked it, right? That's right. And so everybody knows the rule. His playing partner said, yeah, no worries. Just put it back on the tee. Well, yeah, that's right. He hadn't put a ball in play yet, okay? Ah. So he had the ball on the tee, and he was not fairly intentions to strike and move the ball. So he just puts it back on the tee in place. But if he had put a ball in play and he was out in the fairway or the rough or the general area, and he caused the move ball move accidentally like that. He had for penalty, and he had to replace it. Got it. Well, there are going to be lots of rules stories here in in the next few minutes. But here's one of the things that I think, in addition to the normal golfing Joe not really getting the the broader construct of the rules of golf, nor understanding the role that you and your committee and group played over the years in setting up courses and such, is there's. I'm going to call it a mystery, lack of a better term, who or what organization is actually responsible for the rules of golf? Well, you know, we all work together, but let's start with the United States Golf Association and the R&A of uh, St. Andrews. Those, that's the governing body of the game. Okay, so the USGA and the United States of America, rest of the world's the uh, R&A, they, they determine the equipment standards. They make the rules. They handle a handicap situation. They govern the game. Now, we work very closely with them, but they're the people that make the rules, and they're the people that uh, determine uh, if this ball's legal or if this club's legal, and um, they do an excellent job, and they make the rules, and every four years, the rules change, and um, we have a person from our committee that's on that committee that, that helps them with that. And the RNA and the USGA come together for joint rules meetings to discuss these things. Now, the PGA of America is the club professional organization. If you're a member of a club, your pro there is probably a member of the PGA of America. He doesn't play on the PGA Tour for a living. He teaches golf. And he promotes golf in America. That's the PGA. They run the PGA Championship. That's their big tournament. And uh, they also control the Ryder Cup, them and the uh, European Tour. And then the PGA Tour is a nonprofit. And the players on the PGA Tour play on the PGA Tour for a living. They have to qualify to become members, and they have to play well enough to maintain their status. But... You know, people don't realize the PGA Tour is not owned by anyone. It's a nonprofit. And over the years, it's raised over $3 billion for local charities. I mean, that's it's unbelievable, really, when you think about it. That's why these golf tournaments, Carl, mean so much to these communities. 
Right. Well, I live in San Diego. The Farmers Insurance Open is right down the road here. There were some interesting elements uh, from a rules perspective of this past February's tournament, which I'll I'll get to in a second. But that's super helpful. So the majors that we're all familiar with, you just called out the Ryder Cup and the PGA being the PGA of America's two sort of flagship properties, if you will, right? Where does the Masters fall in? Where does um, the U.S. Open of golf fall in? Where does the Open Championships in the U.K. fall in? Okay, well, the Masters is a tournament that stands on its own. It was a tournament started back in the 30s by Bobby Jones and Clifford Roberts down there. And um, over the years, it's become a major championship. They run their championship themselves. So we do send several members of our committee there to assist them in doing that. And the United States Golf Association conducts the U.S. Open Championship that was played at Torrey Pines this past year. And uh, once again, uh, we send several people from our committee to assist them to run that. But that's their event. The PGA Championship, we'll mention that. And the uh, Open Championship played in the U.K. is ran by the RNA. That's the oldest championship in the world. And uh, they rotate that around a rotor of like 10 golf courses. Uh, St. Andrews is next year, which is always a great time. But those are the four major championships. And then you have the players' championships. Like I was telling you earlier, when the players broke away from the PGA, one of the first things they said is we have to have our own championship. And that has evolved as the players played in uh, Ponte Vedra Beach at TPC Sawgrass. I call it uh, Royal Sawgrass. But it's a fabulous place. The way I look at it, you have the four major championships and the players. The players kind of stands on its own. It's 144 of the best players in the world that have qualified. There's not any amateurs. There's not any club pros. It's 144 of the best players in the world playing a very difficult, demanding golf course that can give up a very low score. But if you're hitting a little crooked, you can shoot 100. That's a great championship. All four of those uh, major championships are great tournaments. And um, a lot goes into running those things. It's incredible, really. Well, it is. And that that just underscores why the players is commonly now referred to as the fifth major. I mean, uh, you know, there's just there's just no way around it. You're either among the top 144 or you aren't. And that's the line of demarcation. Well, that's true. And I've referred, like I say, I refer to, I mean, the media just beats you down. And and the PGA Tour has never, ever referred to that tournament as a major championship. The media, you know how the media is, they lose their mind. <laughs> but I, I refer to it as you got the four majors and the players. And uh, those are the gigantic tournaments. You got events like the Ryder Cup, the President's Cup. Big time uh, tournaments like that, and you got Arnold Palmer's Arnold Palmer Invitational, and the Memorial Championship, the tournament at Riviera. I mean, Genesis Invitational, Tigers Tournament. That's a huge event. Uh, also, it's week after week, and um, it's unbelievable how strong the game is, and how many good players are coming into the game. Carl, these kids come off that Corn Ferry Tour. Now, to qualify for the PGA Tour, you have to be in the top 25 of the Corn Ferry Tour. And to do that, they don't play for that much money over there on the Corn Ferry Tour, 600000 700000 So the money drops off really quick 
Okay. So for you to remain in that top 25, you got to play some damn good golf that whole year to be able to qualify for that. So when these kids come off that corn ferry tour and they step onto the PGA tour, they are seasoned players. There's no back off in those kids. And they, when they get over here on a PGA tour, they find out, hell, I have one good week, finish second. I'm set for the year. So, I mean, these, these kids come off this corn ferry tour right. are coming to play. So when the when the season ends and and the top twenty five to the Corn Ferry Tour are they automatically given PGA cards or yes they are auto so is there a relegation element to that so I don't know I mean you're going to help us understand here how many PGA Tour cards are issued each year new ones twenty five I mean the top one twenty five players. They're exempt for next year. And then you throw in the uh, 25 from the uh, Corn Ferry Tour. In essence, that's it. And then you have other players that have won tournaments that have three years exemptions. It's kind of a complicated thing. But those kids that come off the Corn Ferry Tour, they're going to get to play in probably 15 to 20 events. And as you see, I mean, some of them come out there right off the bat playing some excellent golf and – you know, if you don't continue to play well, you will be replaced very quickly. That's how competitive it is. And, you know, it's one of the few things, Carl, that is exactly straight commission, free enterprise. We got $10 million. Whoever plays the best wins the most. And that's one reason it's so successful. Right. Yeah, I totally agree with you that, that you know, the sort of the proof is in the pudding. And, and other than, correct me here, but you win the Masters, you have a 10-year exemption or a lifetime exemption into the Masters. Five years. Five years. Five, well, yeah, the Masters, exactly, right. in that tournament. But it gives you a five-year exemption on the PGA Tour. There you go. So at the end of this, when, when the quote-unquote official year ends, there were 150 PGA Tour players, 25 new ones coming in next year from the Corn Ferry Tour. Does that mean numbers 126 through 150 that just finished are relegated? They still have some status and they'll get to play. It's a ladder system. It goes down top, you know, tournament winners, top 125. Then it goes into Corn Ferry. Then it goes into the 126 to 150. Then it goes into past champions. So everybody doesn't play every week. You know, so that's one thing that our committee would be in charge of doing is keeping up with that and see who's in the tournament, who's the first alternate, you know, what the field's going to be. You have to commit before Friday at 5 o'clock on the East Coast. And then after that, the field's set, and it's up to our committee to put those things together and make that happen. But uh, it's a ladder system, so everybody didn't play every week. So we probably got 200, maybe 225 viable players and they're always wanting to know those guys at Arnie and are always calling to find out, you know, how do I stand? What do you think? Uh, and we've got folks at the PGA Tour office that handle that also. You know, it's a system that works. Got it. And that's a great, great description over the last few minutes of the bedrock of golf, where it's played, how it's played, who adjudicates it, who sets it up, and then how the individual players get a chance to uh, to play on the tour and get a crack at what what is now very significant earning potential on the PGA Tour. What I'd love to do now, Mark, is I, I, I want to know a few of the highest moments, highest spots 
of your decades-long involvement with the PGA Tour, particularly from a rules and competition perspective. So allow me to ask you a few best of questions, if you don't mind. Can you call out for our audience the single most memorable round of golf that you ever witnessed as your role as the chair of the rules committee and the head PGA Tour of America official? Well, there's a there's a <laughs> lot, but I tell you what, I remember at Bay Hill. I guess it's been ten, twelve years ago. You know, Tiger won that tournament probably seven or eight times, but he was sick, and he was playing in the last group on Sunday. And I got word that he had thrown up about three times on the first three holes. So I get a doctor, and I ride out to the, uh, he's leading the golf tournament and I ride out to the fifth tee, which is kind of back in the corner. And I take him over, I get over, I said, Hey, you know, you need some help here. I got a doctor here. He said, well, I'm sick as hell, but you know, I don't want to take anything that he's got cause it's going to make me dizzy and I'm just going to try to play through it. I said, all right, we're right here. You need some help. You know, just let us know. Sick as a dog, throwing up, won the golf tournament. I mean, unbelievable, really. I mean, this guy, that, that was absolutely amazing. If it was me, I'd have had to withdraw and go stay in the bed all day. Right. This guy hangs out there and just, I mean, it's like he's got the flu or something and keeps hitting golf shots on a difficult golf course and hangs in there and wins the golf tournament. That stands out to me. Just an incredible round of golf. Well, and he's done, yeah, Tiger Woods. He's done that more than once. I mean, you recall the U.S. Open at Torrey Pines back in, on on a broken leg. Broken leg. And Steve Williams said, man, you need to withdraw. What are you, crazy? (laughs) And won the golf tournament. It's not like he finished 34th. He won the thing. I mean, it's it's incredible. I mean, he may have won a year. And didn't miss a three footer. Are you kidding me? That's amazing. But that that stands out huge to me. And what he did right around the turn of the century, 2000, 2001, when he had all four major championships, the Players' Championship and the Canadian Open, he had all those trophies in a in a twelve month period. It wasn't the same year. But in a 12-month period, he won every one of those golf terms. That will never be done again in golf. Yeah, I, I sort of agree with that. The competitive set now is is way too intense, way too close. Although, you know, you never say never. That's right. I grew up a swimmer, and when Mark Spitz won seven gold medals in Munich, they said it would never happen again, and then Michael Phelps <laughs> comes along, right, and he wins eight. Well, I can't wait to see this kid that breaks Tigers. Right? Yeah, well. Who, of course, they did at Stanford. They did at Stanford. Right, right. Well, so one of the rules thing that comes to mind, and you said they change the rules every four years, and I don't know if this was inside that four-year window or not, but I do recall, I mean, you and I talked about it before we started, um, Dustin Johnson at Oakmont in 2016. So he's on the green, I want to say, I don't know, it was the 12th or the 13th hole or something like that. More like five. Like five. All right. And it's the final round and he's leading the tournament. Ball moves on the green. He says, I didn't do that. The official who was there said, you know, you're right. Looked at his playing partner, said, you didn't do that. No harm, no foul. And it, uh, that, that official was the chairman of the rules committee for the United States Golf Association. 
Okay. Huh. Okay. He was with that final group. Right. So walk us through that. I mean, I, I don't know that you were there or not, but walk us through what happened. He got flagged with a penalty, still won the tournament. And then a year later, the rules change. Well, I was there, Carl, but I would always leave the U.S. Open on Sunday morning. They had ample people there. I would always leave because I'd, I'd go to Hartford. I always ran that golf tournament. So I would leave on Sunday. But after that happened, Jay Monahan, commissioner, told me, said, I don't want you to ever leave that golf tournament again. So I didn't. I've been there. <laughs> so anyway, what happened is his ball, as he had addressed it, and he stuck his putter back and made contact with the ground and addressed the ball in position to play. And the ball moved. And the question is, did you do anything to cause it to move? And it was determined at that time uh, that he didn't. I mean, it's very difficult to see with the naked eye. And, and another thing that people don't realize about golf is these putting surfaces we play, these spikes we wear now, make little indentions everywhere, especially four or five feet around the hole that you can't even see. So you set your ball down, mark your ball, and you put it down there and it stays there. And then it's right on the edge of one of these indentions. Then it just kind of moves a couple dimples and falls into it. You know, just crazy stuff. But anyway, that penalty was looked at very closely by uh, USGA officials and they determined that uh, Dustin did, in fact, cause his ball to move and assessed him a penalty. Caused a lot of problems. And actually, uh, the good thing about that is it got the rules changed. If you didn't do anything to cause it to move, now your ball on the putting surface, you've got to almost walk up and kick it intentionally to get penalized. And that's a good thing because you finally got the ball on the putting surface. You know, you don't have to be so ultra-careful. Oh, my God, don't touch it. Don't do this. And that really cleaned those rules up. So now if that ball moved and you didn't do anything to cause the move, you just put it right back. Well, that's the great thing about it, right? You just keep looking at it and you go, well, you know, is that a fair rule or not? And, and you see, that's exactly where our people, we, we, you know, we go to the RNA and the United States Golf Association. I mean, these people are our friends. We're going like, guys, how stupid is this? Look at the uproar call. So the ball moved a 16th of an inch. Who cares? You know, the guy still got a butt. And so we got those rules changed. And I've seen many times where a ball just barely moves on the putting surface. You're not sure if the guy calls it. But if he's addressed it, he's deemed used to, he's deemed to cause it to move, he's assessed a penalty. No good. I'm so glad that got cleaned up. That's that's a great change in the rules. Well, that's great to hear, especially from, you know, the guy who was responsible for it on the tour for so many years. And the good news is that the USGA and the RNA as the governing bodies listen to what you guys have to say because you're out there every single day. Oh, yeah, exactly. And they respect that and they ask us. And, uh, you know, and we're all just working to make the game as good as it can possibly be. And, and that's a, we have a very good working relationship with the USGA and the, and the RNA also. Right. It's a good thing. Got it. So two more before we go into a sort of our usual bits here. The best golf course that you've ever played. You got to pick one. Well, I guess I'd have to say Augusta National. Yeah, not surprised to hear you say that. I mean, what a what a great it, it just oozes history, golf history there. And uh, I mean, there's a lot of them. It's hard to say just one. I mean, there's so many good golf courses, and I've been so fortunate and blessed to be able to play a lot of them. 
But uh, I'd have to say Augusta National. Yep, not surprising. So here's an interesting one, at least from my perspective, and I know the audience is going to like this too. The most sort of what I'll call bizarre or unusual or most difficult ruling that you ever had to make? Well, to be honest with you, the, the most difficult thing that our committee deals with is the weather. If we got good weather, we can handle the rules. But a bizarro thing happened several years ago at the um, Players' Championship. You know, coming down the stretch, and it's uh, three guys, four guys in contention. K.J. Choice, one of them, and he's playing like the 16th hole. And we get some information. I'm not even sure where we got it from, but that his caddy has something that he's using to test the wind by. And um, instantly it flashes in my brain. Surely he ain't got something out there that, uh, you know, you wouldn't normally have that he's using to see which way the wind's blowing. Player's going to be disqualified if that's the case. So, uh, you know, we scramble a little bit. I'm like, well, next thing you know, KJ is tied for the lead. And we got 35,000 people there and the media everywhere. And now uh, I got to go in there before he signs his school card and ask him and his caddy what was going on. And if he doesn't answer the incriminating question properly or correctly, disqualification is going to rock the golf world. Okay. So I go in there and Andy and English caddy was caddy for KJ. I said, guys, I, before you sign your scorecard, I've got to ask you, what were you using to check which way the wind was blowing out there? And he said, my handkerchief. I had my handkerchief and I just throw it. Okay, no problem. Get your scorecard, scorecard signed. we got to go ahead and get this playoff underway. Now, if if you're using something that, that is that is that you'd normally have, let's say you and I are playing Carl and we, we got a golf cart and I pull the scorecard off the golf course, throw it up to see which way the wind's blowing, that's okay. But I couldn't have a stringer or something uh, used or, or something, uh, a talcum powder thing that I squeezed up to see which way the wind was blowing. You could that would be something artificial that you could not use, but by him using his handkerchief would be something that he would ordinarily have, so it wasn't a penalty. But that caused some major stress coming down the stretch in that great championship. Well, I bet that's right. And as this past few minutes has underscored, you handled it in the right way, the fair way, with the right outcome. So that's what officials are supposed to do, and that's what every player, team across the world, regardless of sport, expects from the officiating crew and the officials on the field of play. Exactly. Right. That's right. So we have three more bits here. They're all regular sort of features. In fact, by audience demand, I'm bringing back this one because you are episode five of season two, and I switched up a little bit from last year. But the audience said, wait, we got to keep hearing what your guests call out as the favorite mistake they ever made. Now, this is an oxymoron, um, uh, one of my favorite female Singer-songwriters Cheryl Crow wrote a great song called My Favorite Mistake. So this is the one where you really messed up and you learned the most from. Carl, I don't know if you refer to it as favorite anything. <laughs> First of all, it's, you know, I've made many mistakes. If you deal with uh, golf rules or setting up golf course or doing anything, you're going to make some mistakes. But you try your best not to. But uh, 
several years ago at Riviera, first of all, we play so many players that we have to start before sunrise, you know, to get it done. But, you know, in sunny Southern California, it was raining so damn hard all week. We couldn't see. But uh, we were playing Thursday morning, and we were going to tee off at like 6.50. Sunrise is like 6.55. If it's a clear day, no problem at all. And once you get the guys teed off, every minute it gets better, 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 better. And the sun's up, no problem. But in this day, uh, you know, it had been raining all week, and it was very gray. And I was up there on the first tee. I mean, with Jason Croke, Kokrak. And, uh, you know, our starters going, Mark, we're going to play. I said, guys, we got to play. Yes, we're going to play. And that's, it's dark. You can't quite see, barely make it out. So I had Dillard Pruitt down there, one of the committee members uh, in the landing area. Let's just get these guys started and we'll be in business. So they play, can't hardly see. They're, they're, they look at me and said, Mark, you can't be serious. I said, guys, we got to go, okay? It's a tea time, we're going to play. I'm thinking all the time, this is ridiculous. I can't believe we're teeing off in the dark like this. So I have him tee off, get down there, and um, have to keep Dillard down there in that landing area for about 30 minutes. And this, I don't know how deep this cloud cover was, but it had to be 500 miles because it didn't get daylight for an, 45 minutes. Then it started raining, and we had to suspend play. And the players were off the charts, pissed off. And I know I really don't blame them. And Carl, I mean, I learned a long time ago, you walk right into that line, Stan. I walk right into that locker room and people, I can't believe. And I explained to them, I said, guys, I can't, I, I totally agree with you. I thought it would get better by the minute. It never got any better. You couldn't see. Unbelievable. So I go back, we get the committee together, and I say, guys, this is totally unfair what we did. I'm going to scratch these scores, and we're going to start over. And so that's what we did. That's a very rare thing, but the committee has the authority to do that. I said, I'm not going to make these guys play in the damn dark. And when it stops raining, I'm going to go up there, I'm going to announce to everyone that uh, those scores are done, and we're going to start the golf tournament over again. That's what we did. And it turned out good. But that was a very, very long morning for myself and the committee. But it turned out well. There were people real happy with that. And especially Kokrak birdied the first hole. A bunch of guys made bogeys and stuff. But Kokrak said, damn, I birdied the first hole, couldn't even see. <laughs> but that's one thing that I'll always, it pops in my mind when somebody says a mistake you made. Um, if I had it to do over, I wouldn't have started the golf tournament, but I did. And I was thinking the whole time it's going to get better by the minute. It never did. Got totally get that. Totally understand what you did and why you did it. But restart them is an awesome decision. The fair decision, despite what Kokrak might think, having buried the first hole. <laughs> he was okay. I'm sure he was, he was because right. <laughs> he recognized it that your your job, your collective job, is to make it a fair test, and it wasn't. So good for you for catching it and then doing the right thing. I love that. Second one, and this is one of my favorites, the favorite live concert, musical concert that you ever attended where a female artist or band was the headliner. Easy. Joni Mitchell, oh. by far my favorite. Incredible singer, incredible songwriter, excellent guitar player. I saw her a couple times. Fantastic talent. 
and um, I love still listen to her music. Well, that's a great call. Miles of Isles might be one of the best albums ever written and sung. I saw her do that uh, concert, uh, that that tour that she recorded that on. But I saw it at Duke University. It was a fantastic show that I remember today. Well, that's a really good call. Last one, and we, we sort of call it the pithy one, Words Matters. You've led officials all over this country and around the world. So from a leadership perspective, words really matter. What you say, what you don't say. Um, what you do, what you don't do. So the question to you, Mark, is your favorite word and why? Positive. You got to be positive. There's so much negativity in the world. It's unbelievable. But and it's all contagious. The negativity is contagious and the positivity is contagious. I always try to be positive. Somebody asks me how I'm doing. I don't give a damn how I'm doing. I say I'm doing great because that's contagious. You know, I learned that uh, many, many years ago, and positive is my favorite word, and I try to always be that way. I love that word. It's an attitude. It's a mindset. It's a heart set. You lean into the positive, and more often than not, it's going to turn out just fine. Mark, you have been incredibly generous with your time, and there are dozens, if not hundreds of stories, and we could go on and on and on. But I just want to thank you for being a part of this. And and it's been my pleasure and honor to have you. Well, Carl, I think you're going to have to have me back for act two at some point. Well, count on that because, (laughs) because we want to do the best of and the worst of Mark Russell. Mark, you bet, man. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you, Carl. Look forward to seeing you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye now. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Spotify, Google, Pandora, and many others. Please visit our website at thebestbossever.com where you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and LinkedIn. Until next week, remember, words matter. Words matter.